0: check? Oh, no, they're not. You would think after all these years, I don't know. I don't exactly understand that, but God keeps us humble. Hey, Susie, I just appreciate you sharing so much. Where are you? There you are. It's just, I'm, I'm looking at you and listening to your words, and I'm thinking about how God has done amazing things. Like he has... You are an amazing woman of God. I just want you to know that. I really see that and I believe that. God's empowered you and enabled you to, through some very severe hardships to go out and demonstrate his love. That's an example for all of us to follow. And uh, just uh, just make sure you let Susie know how much we appreciate her uh, here. God's doing this great thing and there's no way in the world that any of us would have ever known anything about South Sudan, right? Like I wouldn't have. I remember when you came here the first time and we were talking about it, and I was like, yeah, I will never go to South Sudan. And then what, what, a year later? Is that when I was there? So, I mean, but, but God's given us this opportunity to partner with this, to be actually participate in this amazing thing that he's doing uh, over there. So certainly keep that in mind and in prayer and uh, in, in how you can be partnering and supporting with that as well. Uh, This morning, we are going to uh, continue on in our exploration of the Gospel of John today. So if you would like to, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible or with your Bible app, go to John chapter 5, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 4. It took us a long time. Some of these chapters are are kind of beefy and uh, it took us a while to get through it, but we looked at the account of Jesus healing the royal official's son, and we focused on the the example of the, the evolving faith uh, of that man and we saw how this idea of seeing as believing was challenged uh by god is challenged by god all through his word uh, calling us to believe regardless uh, of evidence putting a trust in him that uh, that exceeds our natural perception of things uh it's a theme that carries through the entire bible it certainly is going to be carrying through john's gospel we'll come back to the uh uh, again, Now, real quick, I just want to give you a, a, a uh, what do you call that? Uh, a, a, a reminder of the, the uh, that's a simple word. I don't know why I lost it, but uh, either way. Uh, if you remember the outline of John, and I don't know if you can see it uh, on the screen, but if you've you sh- you got a bulletin, it's on the back of your bulletin as well. So as we're going through this, we're in a section traditionally called the book of signs. The, the, the book is broken into two parts. Chapters two through four, and, and and the book of signs is is broken into two parts as well. Chapters two through four show Jesus in contrasts with the, in contrast with the 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 institutions of Judaism, the rituals of purification, the temple system, the rabbinical system, the holy sites like Jacob's Well. The section began in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, and then this chapter four finished off in Cana. We came full circle. We came back to Cana. Uh, and ended it there. So now we're going to begin the next section, uh, uh, which is chapters 5 through 10, where Jesus is found in the midst of the Jewish festivals and holidays, and where some of the imagery of that gets utilized to give a deeper revelation of who Jesus is, somewhat in contrast, but more just in how he embodies what these things are. So uh, today we're going to read about another healing, which reveals that the wholeness that's offered through Jesus stands in tension between our own imagined solutions for life and the solutions that get offered to us by religion. What Jesus offers stands in tension between those things. You'll, you'll see what I mean a- as we go. But as we read this stuff, and I want to just reiterate this because we as moderns and as Westerners have a tendency to approach the scripture like this. When we read about these miracles for healing don't just come into this looking at it thinking, hey, how can I get this replicated in my life? How can I see these amazing things? Understand that these things are here to teach us something deeper than that, to, to, ex, to expand our understanding of what it means to come into relationship with God. And these healings become a way for us to perceive it in ways that we wouldn't be able to do it without those. Uh, you, you'll, you'll get it as we're going into it. So if you're there in John chapter 5, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, there, there was a uh, was a pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Now, if you're reading an NLT, you'll notice we skip right to uh, verse 5. Uh, uh, if you've got an NIV, uh, uh, not an NIV, but a King James Version or a New King James Version, You'll notice a discrepancy. I mean, first of all, it should uh, make you wonder what's going on when we go from verse three to verse five. Uh, verse. Uh, most of the, the the modern translations, the NLT, which we're using, included omit uh, verse four. Let me just read to you what verse four says in an older version. For an angel went down. So this, remember, it says that the blind, lame, and paralyzed are laying on the porches. For an angel went down at a certain time in the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Most scholars are united in asserting that verse 4 was not part of the original text. The oldest manuscripts that we have do not contain that, and they're very reliable manuscripts. Uh, What is assumed is that this was probably a notation made by a copyist uh, and that, that over time, after copy, after copy, after copy, it got solidified into being a part of the original text. Uh, it was probably intended to help make sense of a conversation that occurs later and was probably based on local uh, legends uh, from that time. But even if we have it there or don't have it there, it doesn't really matter that much. I want to make it clear that if you've got that in your Bible, this text is not trying to assert that there was anything more than superstition happening at this pool. It's just stating that this is what. I'll bring this right back. Oh, okay. Old school. Take me back to my rock star days. No. Oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I can't even believe I did that. Where was I? The text wasn't trying to tell us that this is what was happening. It was just the superstition at that time. And listen, that that kind of stuff happens around pools of water all the time. I was up in Indian Springs, Georgia, one time, and there's a little spring up there, and people would line up. You know, long lines of people to get there to get this water, you know, that they said was going to cure them or make them better. The only miracle associated with it to me is that somebody could choke that stuff down because it smelled horrifying. Uh, So anyway, the Pool of Bethesda. We know where this place is. Uh, In 1964, the Pool of Bethesda was finally identified. It it was a rectangular pool that had a dividing wall down the middle of it, uh, down its center with porticos over all of it, which would account for the five porticos or five porches that John mentions here. One side of the pool was higher than the other, and as best we can tell, it was spring-fed. So when it filled up, the top water would spill out. Or we actually found some uh, some uh, channel work in in, in the remains of the uh, the ruins of that. So the water would flow from the top pool into the bottom pool, which if there was a troubling in the water would account for that with the water bubbling up through through the the lower part uh, into the lower part of the pool and so it would make sense that people would gather around the porches and the porticos to get shade you know they can't move around easily so you can just kind of hide under there oh thank you Blake uh, pardon me for a moment all right check test okay there we go all right Woo. so uh it makes sense that people are laying around there. And if the water is actually going to provide a little bit of healing or something, all the better. Like, all, why not hang out over there just in case something will happen? So in this story, Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days, it says. It doesn't identify which one. We'll find out that it's Sabbath. So it's, that's in view. So it, it may be the Feast of Weeks. It may be the Feast of Pentecost. It doesn't seem to matter to John. He didn't include that part of it in there. So the narration puts Jesus at this pool where all these sick people are. And again, we don't know why he's there. Potentially, it was a mikvah bath. So potentially, before you go up to the Temple Mount, most people would, would do a ritual cleansing before they do that. So maybe he's there for that. But it really, again, doesn't tell us that detail. He's, he's just there. Um, but all of this sets the scene for what takes place. So let's get into that. That's the setting. Here's the story, verse 5. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he'd been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? (laughs) I can't, sir. The woman, the the sick man said, I don't know why I heard that. The sick man said, For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat, and began walking. Okay, so I want you to pay attention to notice the thematic use of water in John's gospel here. We got water in Cana. We got water with Nicodemus. We got water at the well, water at this pool. The spirit moved over the face of the water at creation. So there's this sense of new creation emerging here in this gospel narrative. And so imagine that pool. This is where we got to engage a godly imagination and try to think about what this environment was. All around the edges, in the shade of the porticos, people with all kinds of maladies are sitting or lying there, maybe groaning at different times. Blind people who are, uh, those who are crippled and disabled, paralytics, amputees. You can imagine the desolation of a scene like that, of this constant flow of misery around there. And imagine the the sadness and the, the sunken eyes, the thousand-yard stares of the people who are, are there. And, and hear the sound of people who are begging as you walk by, because how else are you going get, to get by in something like this? Imagine the teeth, which would likely have been rotten or missing from malnutrition. And you can only imagine there would be a smell associated with this and flies. There would be flies. But there was also Jesus. Jesus is there. Not exactly where you'd expect to find a king, much less a God, but there he is and with no explanation as to why. The text says that he singles out one man, someone that the others have overlooked or abandoned, but Jesus sees him. He's been unable to walk for 38 years, the same amount of time that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So new creation, new exodus. And Jesus goes up to this guy and he asks what seems like on the surface an inane question. Like, would you like to get well? It's kind of like, well, duh. I mean, language scholars point out that in the Greek, the way this question is worded is more than just asking this guy if he wants to walk. Another way this could be worded is, are you willing to come into existence as a whole person? Yes, his physical body is in view, certainly. He's there with this with this uh, illness that's keeping him from being able to walk. But there's something in this that actually reaches below the surface. He's asking, in essence, if this guy's willing to be reborn as a whole person. And again, we're coming back to these themes that have been, been uh, threading through here, back to Nicodemus in, in that conversation. And the man's answer is typical of how conversations usually go down in John's gospel. Uh, J- Jesus is saying one thing, and the people are hearing another thing, based usually on a temporal frame of view, something that they you know, are trying to achieve or get or have, and Jesus is actually talking about something else. The guy didn't say yes or no. Isn't it interesting? That, you know, guy, Jesus says, you want to be whole. You want to be well. And the guy doesn't say yes or no. He starts filling Jesus in on the facts. Get him up to speed on this whole thing. No, 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 no. You I can't. You, know, you don't get it. So, you know, it's just, dude, I don't have anyone to help me get in the water. And everybody gets in here before me when it bubbles. So, you know, I, I'm just kind of stuck here. And he's probably eyeing Jesus' biceps thinking, you look pretty strong. Maybe you could kind of help me out here. Maybe, you know, you could be the guy that put my plan into action. And you see the problem with that, right? This guy had solutions to his troubles, and they were all mapped out, ready to go. He determined that this pool was his best option for wholeness. But he was also quick to point out that his plan wasn't working because people were not cooperating. People were failing him in this. But Jesus bypasses this guy's plan altogether, and he offers him something else. I will make you whole. Just follow my instructions. They're very simple. Get up, take your bed, (laughs) and take a walk. And and I believe what we see in this is that the wholeness that Jesus is offering us is oftentimes at odds with our imagined solutions. We come up with a lot of plans. We come up with a lot of ways in which we know that we're going to be whole finally. What are the bubbling pools that we're staring so longingly at? Thinking if we just reach that, we'd be satisfied finally. We'd have that life we're looking for. We'd have what it is that we've been longing for all this time. We want the girlfriend or the boyfriend or the job promotion or the house or the possession or the retirement. Or we want this person in office and not that person in office. And we get so frustrated because... Everyone lets us down and makes it so difficult for us to achieve our plans. We want to get to that pool. and People aren't cooperating with us. So we look to Jesus to try to get him to help us get in the pool. We get Jesus in on our plan. He's pretty strong. He can do some amazing things. He should be able to pull this off for me if anybody's going to. But just like this guy in the story, we're going to have to face the facts take a deep breath here, that Jesus doesn't always intend on validating our plans. Not because he doesn't like us. (laughs) I'm not going to do that for you. No, it's not that. But because he's got something better in mind than just our fetid bubbling pool that we think is going to do it for us. Remember the saying We've said it many times. How do we make God laugh? We tell them our plans. And that doesn't mean that we can never make a plan. Don't, don't misunderstand that. You know, Did you have an appointment with our dentist's office? No, man, I don't make plans. <laughs> Jesus just leads me through life. No, that's not, that's, that's not what we're saying. But it means that the, the, the plans we have, because we have to make plans by necessity. We wouldn't be here this morning. <laughs> We'd still be just kind of wandering around the house. I don't know what I'm doing. So the plans that we have by necessity... We hold with a very loose grip, knowing that God is working his plan in all things, that he's got something working out. And the promise of Romans eight twenty eight says that he's working through all of these things, the things that we perceive as good, the things that we perceive as bad. He's working through it all for what's best for us, for what's going to benefit us eternally as human beings made in the image of God. It means that we don't look for our ultimate fulfillment in anything but, but, but the values and the purposes that Jesus has for our lives. That doesn't, you know, and again, so, okay, man, so I'm not allowed to enjoy anything except Jesus. Okay, it's not what I'm saying even in that. Obviously, and did that sound blasphemous or something? I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying that obviously we have things that we enjoy. There's things in life, you know, there's this type of music I like. Well, you know, it's not Jesus, is it? Well, it's not that. It's talking about fulfillment, Right. Can, can we make that distinction? There are things we enjoy, there are things we enjoy doing or whatever, but when we talk about what's going to fulfill us, what's going to make us a whole human being, that's going to finally satisfy us, regardless of what we have around us, whether we're enjoying it or not, we're going to find that in Christ. We're going to find that in following his purposes, his values, his priorities in life. And sometimes the plans that we had, those solutions that that. We thought for sure with the things that we're going to finally satisfy us, sometimes they have to be walked away from completely in order to obey Jesus. Jesus told this guy, get up and take your mat with you. Don't leave it here as a backup plan in case you suddenly missed this pool and want to come hang out here one day. Pick it up, clear it away, and start this new life, walking forward, empowered and purposeful in his plan to redeem all things. And that's what we keep in view. This is where it's all going. He is going to redeem all things. Everything that's wrong, he's going to make right again. I think for too many people, this has been a sticking point. I think that they like the idea of Jesus coming around and offering life. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. But they only want the life that they intended, not what God wills. And that is what got us into trouble in the first place, back in the book of Genesis. This is this is a reality that we're going to have to face as followers of Jesus. And and again, it's one of those things that, you know, we gotta, we just got to face squarely. It's not probably a popular thing to say, but it's a reality. Jesus is here to help. He is here to help, to rescue and to redeem our lives, but not just so we can carry on doing what we were doing or going where we were going. He's got something so much better in mind than than what we could ever even dream of. A sense of wholeness and security awaits us in him that is not tethered to the shaky stuff of this world. Like he talked about, storing up treasures in heaven where it doesn't rust. Moths aren't going to eat it. It's not going to tarnish sometime down the way. It's not tethered to the temporal broken stuff of this world, but it's united and bound to God's infinite love for us. Okay, well, so this guy takes Jesus at his word. He obviously believes him, didn't give us the details on what it was that made him decide that this was right, that he could do this. And he starts scrambling to his feet, you know, moving around, doing something he hasn't done in 38 years, miraculously cured. He he does what Jesus says. He gets up on his feet, he picks up his mat, rolls it up, and he bounces on out of there. It's a great story. Really could end it right there because it's so nice. It's just a it's heartwarming. It taught us some good lessons, Uh, and maybe we should end there. But we actually didn't finish uh, verse nine, and so that the narrative continues in verse nine. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish religious leaders objected, and they said to the man who was cured, "You can't work on the Sabbath." well, it doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But the man replied, well, the man who healed me uh, told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. Okay, so John is ruthless when describing the religious leaders uh, of that time. It's actually sort of hilarious as you're thinking about it. They're absolute geniuses at missing the point uh, on this. The religious leaders of that time protected the Sabbath. They held it up as the vital symbol of the Jewish heritage and and religion. The Mishnah, which is called the oral law, or Jesus called it the traditions of men, but uh, it stated clearly that carrying something from one place to another was completely forbidden. So like carrying this mat from one place to another, according to Shabbat 7-2, you can't do that unless it's small enough that it can fit inside of a cow's mouth. I'm not making that up, but either way. Uh, so, so they look at this, and this is the thing, they look at this formerly disabled man carrying his mat out of this place, and they stop him to say, what you're doing is sinful. No, what he's doing is impossible. It's impossible. 38 years of immobility? Come on. He's got atrophied muscles in his legs, his back, his feet. He would have balance issues that would take a person years of physical therapy to get past and be able to have command over his limbs again. And yet here he is just, you know, cruising along, toting his bed. And they they should have been jumping around, for joy, ecstatic, or or better yet, they should have had their hands over their mouths in horrified wonder at seeing this incredible display of power. But their only statement is, that's against the rules, what you're doing there. And this is not placed in John's gospel just to give us comic relief. This is an intentional contrast. Because think about this. The guy's been sick for 38 years Jesus could have waited a few more hours and, and it would have, the sun would have gone down, it wouldn't have been Sabbath anymore. A few more hours isn't going to change the 38 years he's gone through. He could have waited. But Jesus is deliberately disrupting their idea of what God desires. The festivals and the Sabbath were made by God to bring good gifts to his people, not to enable others to legislate and control the behaviors of someone else, and I believe we see here that the wholeness that Jesus offers us is distinct from a life of religious obligation. God isn't interested in trying to get us to adhere to a religious code, that's never been his intent, an impersonal law. He wants us to teach us, he wants to teach us to live in him guided and empowered by his spirit with his values and priorities in view. We have to learn his values. We have to learn what his priorities are, but then guided by his spirit. We live in this new way to be human. It's really important that we see this in all of the gospel accounts, not just John, that when we prioritize compliance with religious rules and codes, we could find ourselves at odds with what it is that God is doing in this world. Because that's what we see playing out with the Pharisees in this. God is happily working to redeem outside of our religious parameters. And we need to be okay with that. Or we may miss some of the cool stuff that God is up to, like we see in the example of the Gospels. Our church structures, even some of our theologies, may not be as important as we think they are at times this guy i mean let's let's focus in on this guy this guy knew nothing about jesus didn't know his name couldn't figure out where he was from or what he was doing there john even leaves all of that out but this guy knew nothing didn't know how to identify him and yet jesus is at work giving him new life And I think there's something to that. I think there's something important in that. I think that we need to kind of look at our own behaviors and expectations and wonder, do we have a cart in front of our horse? There are religious standards that we've got to be careful about. And we've got to even question. We've got to ask, are there religious standards that I've set up that might keep me from seeing what God is doing outside of them in someone else's life? Are there religious standards that I've set up for my own life that could keep me from God because I feel like I've failed them? As a recovering Pharisee myself, I know this is something that I have struggled with a lot. I really have. I, and, you know, what, nearly 30 years of being on the other side of this, and I am still, I still catch myself at at different times, either holding myself to something or wanting to impose something on someone else. Hey, it's the easy way to go in, in this whole thing. And I suspect that I've only scratched the surface of the freedom that Christ has offered me and you. And that's a lot to ponder. But as we ponder it, we will find a qualifier. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. But after Jesus found him in the temple, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So the guy made his way on up to the temple. I mean, this is a guy who's ambulatory now. He's just moving around, doing whatever he wants. He's going to the temple. And look how he, look where he shows up. I think that's interesting in and of itself. Jesus gives him new life. Where is the first place we see him again? In the temple. He's got a change of focus going on here. Jesus told him, now you're well. So stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, scholars are divided on that last verse there. What does that mean? It's hard to read it. After, Either this guy is an ungrateful snitch who rats Jesus out as soon as he gets a chance, or now he's making it clear. Now he knows, and so he's making it clear who it is that healed him, and he's standing in solidarity with Jesus. I'm kind of hoping for the latter on that. That's what I would think. But verse 14 is puzzling, too, because it seems like Jesus is threatening this guy. (laughs) Like, stop sinning or something really bad's going to happen to you. And that's an interesting thing because it was a common belief in that day that sickness and maladies were a result of sin. And Jesus will directly contradict that notion when we get to chapter 9. You can go read it on your own sometime. We'll get there eventually. But uh, Jesus, you know, disassociates those two from each other. So why would he say that to this guy? that's a curiosity to me. Why is he like, so maybe we could come away and say, well, there are some things that happen because of sin. And that, you know, that could be sometimes there's cause and effect that just happens, you know, and, and we do something and and, uh, we do something willfully that disrupts whatever. And, and we end up paying the price for it. You know, we do something illegal and we end up in jail And, and, you know, there's a cause and effect thing. Those things are directly connected. Maybe that was the case with this. But here's, here's something else to think about, just to kind of to roll around in your mind. The idea of sin, especially in the Hebrew mindset, carries with it the idea of the disruption of relationship. So covenant was everything for the Jewish people. And sin meant to the Jewish people, the breaking of covenant with God, the breaking of that relationship with God. But it also applied to people. Those who sin against us was actually part of the Lord's prayer, Right. Because it carries that relational sense. Sin was not just an impersonal thing that was done. It it carried with it the idea of relationship and and closeness. And and so as we remember who this guy was, that, that there's no one in his life, no friends, no family to help him in the pool, we realize this may have been a pattern for him. Maybe this is, you know, what was going on with him. Maybe to be out of relationship with God and with his fellow human being was part of his pattern. So Jesus may be telling him, you need to let God pattern your life here. You need to be in relationship with him and relationship with your fellow human being because life has a way of getting even worse when God's not the one shaping it, uh, when, when we're not in relationship with God. Does that make sense? So maybe see it as less a threat and more as guidance for how it is. You carry this life out that God has provided to him through this healing that Jesus performed. What's clear in the exchange, though, however we're going to interpret verse 14, what's clear is that Jesus is making us whole so that we can live a better kind of life. Freedom isn't just freedom for the sake of freedom. It's not that. Jesus intends to break us out of the patterns of the fall, of the thing that has ruined this world. He wants to redeem our lives not just in some faraway heaven somewhere that we can put off till later. He wants to redeem our lives right here, right now. He's got something better in mind for us in life. God has a plan and a purpose for us, for you. But it means that we're going to have to cooperate with his purposes. It means that we have to turn from those old patterns that we were accustomed to. And we've got to pick up that mat and we've got to move forward. We have to be disciplined to make different choices in life, choices that are in sync with God's character who's at work in us and in this world. It means that we determine to let go of things like bitterness or offenses. We learn to extend love even to those who treat us badly or those we may disagree with. That seems to be a big issue nowadays. We embrace the discipline to stop chasing after the temporal, physical gratifications and pleasures that are just an end in themselves that people chase through substance abuse or sexual abuse or any of those kinds of things. It means we, we, we set out to learn what life can be like without those things. Because if we just keep on doing what we did before, we're not going to know the wholeness God wants us to have. I believe that's what Jesus was concerned about for that man that he healed. If you just continue on in the same patterns, the same thing's going to happen. But there's a new life. There's a new way of perceiving life. That's the gist of, of what is being communicated here to me. You can say, well, but Rob, isn't that just, I mean, isn't that just keeping rules to make God happy again? Are we just back to that? No. I mean, we're really not, and I hope you're able to see the distinction. We we don't live differently to get God to love us. God loves us as we are. God's going to be at work in our lives, regardless of what religious obligations a person's near or fulfilling. But God wants us to have a better life. God has a better life. He wants to draw out of us so that we can rightly represent his love into this world a fulfilling humanizing life is what god wants for us but we have to cooperate with that process it's not like he just turns a switch and suddenly everything's different we have to set out on this journey we got to roll up the mat we got to move forward and move away from the old past patterns that we were firmly ensconched in and we don't do this by gritting our teeth and shouldering religious rules, but by asking Jesus to guide us into the life that God intended for us, by learning his values and his priorities and seeing our lives shaped around those things by God's spirit, not through compliance to, or, or conformity to religious expectations. You see what I'm saying? You catch the difference in that? The wholeness Jesus wants to give us isn't going to be found in the pool of our own solutions. It's not going to be found in religious performance. It's found in embracing His love for us and then following His plan for life, finding our fulfillment by discovering that His love for us is without bounds and then intentionally pursuing His purpose for our lives, not as an afterthought, not as, you know, an addition to the life that I'm already pursuing, but recognizing that life, this gift that he's given us has a singular termination point, And from there heads into eternity, everything with eternity in view. So let's do that. Let's em- embrace his plan. Let's see what kind of life that his values and his purposes brings out, draws out of us as we pursue that. Let's determine to be in communication with the one who gave us this life by praying. And prayer is not just, you know, it's not a formula that we go through. Prayer is a conversation with a friend. Prayer is, is speaking to God, and, and communicating and, and conversing and waiting and listening for him to potentially speak or guide or lead. And he does it, does it in subtle ways, does it in big ways. He does it because he loves you and he cares about you. And this is what he has in mind for all of us. So let's see what life can look like in pursuit of his purposes. Right on? All right. Very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. if you're able. Father, uh, we, we ask you to work this in our lives. Father, we present ourselves before your word week after week. We come here and we don't come here because it's an, an awesome show <laughs> or that there's anything even remotely professional about it. We come here, Father, because we, we take the time to lovingly gaze into your word, to see what it says to us. And now we ask you, Father, by your spirit, to form that words in our lives. So do that. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Have free reign here and form your word, your values, your priorities into us. Guide us and empower us by your spirit to live as your people in wholeness in life. I pray that for every person here. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turns his face toward you. Be gracious to you, the Lord. Turn shine upon Be gracious to the Lord turn You in a thousand generations, your family, your children, and the children, and the children may his favor be upon you in a thousand. sing that one more time. Let's imagine us singing it to each other, having it sung to you by your neighbors. This is our prayer over each other for this week. Here we go. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward